The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, man, how's it going? Hot. There you go. That's That was how it was last week, too. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's gotten more hot, hotter, uh, muy fuego. I don't know how you want me to put this, Ben, but it's it's happened. So it's lots I, of hot. I would like it in a different language every time now. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna to have to call Tiffany and figure out how to say this in Chinese and a couple other languages, but we'll we'll get it done. It'll be all right. Um, how are things down in Kansas? Humid. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not been too terribly bad, other than you know we're seeing a big spike in COVID cases uh, locally, and it is what it is. And we're trying to educate the masses on wearing masks, but I think there's a silent majority that don't mind doing it, but there's a very loud minority that are adamantly against it yes that seems to be a widespread widespread even problem i don't think it's just in your region but certainly we're hearing it here as well it doesn't seem to be as loud but there are certainly the minority like you said that for reasons that i can't understand a seven minute trip into walmart is really bothering them with a paper filament mask so it's something that's it's going to be a, a fight to overcome. I, I just I get tired of hearing people say we support law and order or I'll do anything for my country, but not wear a paper mask. I, I don't understand that viewpoint. So. It's, it's like the meat love song. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. So Correct. Or they're like, I love my children. I die for my children, except for wearing a 3M paper filament mask for nine minutes. I won't do that. I, I just I don't get it. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But Ben, we have yes, a very special guest on tonight. Do you wanna you wanna take us down this road? Sure. Well, I mean, we'll let him tell his story, but we'll go ahead and introduce him. Whoa, 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 whoa! You're you mean we're not going to tell the story for the guest and just have him? No. Go, mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, no. I think we'll oh, just let okay. him do it. Oh, okay. We'll see how that works. I don't know. Well, something new. Well, <laughs> so Neil, want to welcome you to the show. How you doing, man? Pretty good today. And by today, you mean that I understand you've had some issues recently, correct? Yeah, I, we've been um, dealing with uh, inflammation and problems with uh, breathing since probably May on and off. And Tom, the reason we wanted to have Anil on the show is, Tom, you and I have talked ad nauseum about COVID-19 and we've tried to debunk myths and we've tried to do Facebook Lives and we've really tried to get information out there. And then we had 
Shannon on the show. And of course, Shannon had went to New York city and, you know, was right there kind of a ground zero of, of everything that was going on there. But we wanted to bring a Neil on because it's going to bring a whole new perspective of COVID-19. And hopefully maybe this is a perspective that some people will listen to. This Doubt is it. the, well, I'm hopeful, Tom. I'm hopeful. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> I hope so too. Honestly. But this is the perspective of a COVID-19 patient, correct, Neil? Yes, I guess that's what I am now. And hopefully not forever, but I mean, at least for the, for the purposes of this podcast, that's what, I mean, we want to kind of focus on is is how you've uh, went through everything and then kind of where things are now, so. Okay. Um, where would you like me to start on this journey? Well, let's start at the beginning. Like, what symptoms did you develop and then going into testing. Let's let's start with that. Well, uh, there's some question on where it started, but sometime in um, mid to early March, I got a, I had a bout of bacterial pneumonia, I guess is what it was, because I thought we kicked it with um, antibiotics and steroids and all that heavy stuff. And then about a month later in mid-April, I was uh, delivering a load in Indiana, and I started feeling what I thought was a uh, either another round of pneumonia or allergies, except this time I got started to get really fatigued. I would, you know, normally my days are 14 to 16 hours and about two hours and I was pulling over and taking a nap or resting or whatnot. So normally what would take me a day to get home took about two and a half. And I think the only reason I made it was on the, the tail end of it. I had um, figured out that there was definitely some sort of a, oxygen myths going on. And I was able to um, get enough breath or oxygen to keep moving if I did shallow breathing through my nose. We kind of just barely made it home or, and did a telehealth visit with someone local because at this point in time, you know, everyone was still trying to figure stuff out and they didn't want to see people in person. So I was um, diagnosed over telehealth and they kind of felt the same way. So I got another round of antibiotics and steroids and a little bit. And my mom actually came home. She's a traveling nurse and my wife had called her over because she didn't like the way I was looking. And they had put a pulse, what those finger things on me. And my, um, I guess my oxygen level was dropping pretty steadily in the 80s. So that it was kind of like crunch time. So my, my mother actually, you know, no one was thinking COVID. I mean, if they were, they were kind of in denial about it. So my mom, took me to uh, 20 minutes away to the hospital with no PPE, no mask, no nothing. While I was hacking up a lung and, you know, trying to figure out how to breathe again. And we went to uh, a local hospital out here. And it's kind of funny watching how things changed over the months. But back then I was allowed to walk into the waiting room and sit in the waiting room with everyone and get triaged and do a little bit. And I think it, it hit them pretty quick that I was um, probably a COVID patient. Because they put me in a room and after their triage and they um, gowned up. It's kind of weird because it starts getting, you know, I understand everyone was, you know, they, they were doing what they could. But, you know, the care team from that point on was really attempting to, like, limit contact. So I think I saw the nurse once or twice. And I saw the ER doctor once and maybe twice. But after that, most of the contact was through the phone and the uh emergency room. So they would call me and be like, we, we saw this, the blood work says this. And I, I think from my um, 
inflammation markers, they had already decided that I was going to be positive. Um, so there was some talk about going home with an oxygen tank or what we were going to do after that. And, you know, I, I think once they uh, determined that I was probably positive, I no desire to go home, infect the world again. So we went um, upstairs for observation, I think, for a couple days. And not really, things get a little hazier there. But um, after a couple days of me not eating and I, they turning up the oxygen every so often, I think my heart started getting a little erratic or there was something something that bothered them. And they moved me to uh, one of the, the four ICU beds that we have. And um, I think they had a, a pulmonologist examine me on a robot. And I think I was getting really close to uh, having the oxygen set at 15 units. My breathing was getting a lot worse. And they, um, okay. I want to say it was about four days in because we hit Sunday about there. And I think I missed their uh, what their parameters for keeping me. And there was they talked to my mom or my wife. Well, they talked to me first because I was texting people, and I knew that I had about an hour before they were going to put me on a ventilator and fly me to KU. And they they had made it pretty clear that you know that they needed the resources there. The uh, test programs there were probably the um, you know the only chance that I had at that point. And I wasn't really talking much because the breathing was getting much more difficult. And I found out later from that point in time, my my lungs were 80 or 90% full. Wow. There wasn't a lot of oxygen getting in. And, you know, I think what he told my wife was... So... Oh, go ahead. Or, no, please finish and then I'll ask. Oh, yeah. What, what the doctor had told my wife was that, you know, I was fighting as much as I could, but there were just there wasn't enough left in me to fight much longer. So that, that hour for me was, you know my hour to text people and get stuff in order and figure stuff out before I got sent away. Hmm. So a couple questions I have is one of the big medications that everyone keeps talking about um, antibiotic wise is azithromycin or most commonly known as a Z-Pak. Was that one of the medications that you were perhaps treated with? If you remember prior to all this, like for one of the rounds of uh, pneumonia? No, I had a stronger medicine. It started with an L. Levaquin? Yeah, it was Levaquin. was the first antibiotic. Okay. And they, the second one I was prescribed was a Z-Pak, but because there was no infection or no bacterial infection and all the blood work, they didn't do that. I know they did um, the, the hydrochloroquine or somewhere. I'm not sure if they did that before the vent or after. But um, it didn't have any effect, and it may have made some things worse. So that one, that one got pulled. And one of the other questions, and this is just because I want people listening to get some depth on this, is when you're saying I was feeling like I was get, the shortening, the shortness of breath was getting worse. Can you tell them like? Was it a struggle to breathe, or was it like you felt like you were breathing but you couldn't move oxygen? What exactly were you feeling at that time? It was very short, rapid breath. I was fighting for everyone. There was a period where they thought maybe I would improve. One of your past guests, Shannon, was on the phone with me through a lot of it. And, and her and my mother were telling me to get into a prone position. And when I was prone, my oxygen was a little bit better. And it was actually improved, but uh, just temporarily. And I couldn't, I couldn't stay in that position very long. It was painful or a fight or very uncomfortable. But we had to switch between the mask and the and the nose 
oxygen delivery when I go on my stomach because I was breathing a little bit better. And I'm sorry, like you broke up a little bit. So if I if you answer this, I apologize. Was it ever painful to try and breathe or was it just you just didn't feel like you were moving any oxygen? I, I, it was painful because I was I was asking for painkillers or, or morphine or whatever they would give me. But they were kind of stuck on Tylenol because they didn't want me to be relaxed enough to stop breathing at that point in time. So if you don't mind me asking, prior to being diagnosed, what were your thoughts on, because I mean, you're still obviously diagnosed pretty early on, but what were your thoughts on COVID-19 prior to you being positive for it? Well, I thought, I kind of went back and forth on how I felt about it, but I definitely um, was not as, I didn't take it as seriously then, and I I felt like I was going to be in that 90 some odd percent, but it wouldn't affect you know, because I was very healthy before that, you know, except for being diabetic. But I was highly, you know, right. very tightly controlled. You know, I'd get letters from my doctor because I would see her once a year, you know, because she'd make me. But, you know, I didn't get sick. I didn't have pretty healthy diet-wise. I was pretty active. I just, I didn't, I didn't see it hitting me as hard as it did. And definitely not as quick. And I know in one of the stories that, that I read a letter that you wrote in regards to this, you know, once you were dropped off at the ER and they determined that you were likely positive and then confirmed that there was obviously no visitors, no interaction with your family in real life. I mean, obviously text and, and FaceTime, but no visitors, right? Yeah, that was, it was it. They, um, at first they, they had told my wife she could come and see me off on the helicopter, which you know, normally they only allow guests on COVID people if they think they're going to die. At the last minute, they told her she couldn't even do that. So it was it was about two and a half, almost three weeks. You know, I had zero contact with anyone. You know, except for hospital staff that was. And that has to be hard mentally. I mean, you know, you're you're fighting this disease and and you're struggling to breathe, and then you have no support system outside of what you can get through a phone. Well, I guess fortunately, unfortunately, uh, between the delirium and, you know, the six or seven days on the ventilator, I don't really, you know, that time went pretty quick. You know, the, the before and after was a little more difficult, though. I think before it was such a struggle just to hmm. stay conscious. It did. It would have been, you know, the, the last hospital visit I had since I was finally confirmed negative. I know it was a huge relief to my wife that she got to stay with me for the day. And, you know, that was... I mean, she almost cried when they told her she could stay. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, that's, uh, that hour before you were intubated, I know you, you said that was kind of when you were trying to make arrangements and make sure everything was taken care of. But, I mean, that had to be you know, in the back of your mind, too, that because the statistics were, you know, if, if patients went on ventilators, it's really hard to come off of them, particularly for COVID patients. Well, uh, and I'm my, sure you knew that. So, I mean, that had to be going through your mind, too. Well, it was worse than that because the – so I had read a report about diabetic COVID patients. You know, those odds were even worse. You know, it was you yeah. know 10, 10 to 20% on a good day. And, you know, I, I understood, you know, because the doctor even at the first hospital, you know, he had made the point that the very last thing they wanted to do was put me on a ventilator because they were concerned that, you know, that would make the odds even that much worse. Damn. 
that had to be a, a hard position to be in. It was, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't get to say the things I wanted to say because my concern was um, that my wife would be, you know, okay and be able to run the business. And, you know, so I, even now I regret that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like that touching romantic last moment. It was, Hey, here's how you get into the accounts. Here's how you take care of the guys. Here's how you run the company. Here's how you're okay until I get back if I do. And then, you know, in the very back of my head was, oh, my God, I was home for a day with the people I care about. And how contagious was I? You know, did I just kill everyone else, too? And that, you know. Hmm. Did anybody else you had immediate contact with come back positive? No, they actually, everyone tested negative for antibodies. So no one, no one got anything, fortunately. Which is great. <laughs> kind of bad, obviously bad for you. So from the first hospital, you were intubated, and then you were shipped out to KU, which is obviously a big hospital system. And my understanding, of course, with you being intubated, there you don't have a lot of recollection of any of that or much of that beyond what you've read through medical records and such. So when did you kind of start coming around again? I started, I have some like vague memories of when they were waking me up to give me commands, they, they would turn the vent. I found out later, they would turn the ventilator down to the minimum and cut the painkillers down as low as they could to bring me out of it every day. And, you know, they'd ask me to wiggle my toes or do something like that. But I, I really, I remember them yelling at me to calm down and whatnot. And that's probably why I woke up restrained. They said I, I had a, I pulled out my feeding tube a couple times and pulled out my main line. And, you know, so I still have some scars here and there. Hmm. But yeah, when I woke up, I was I was restrained to the bed and had the mittens on. And I remember, you know, each day was different. There was a day or two I thought I was in China. There was a day or two I thought I was in jail. Then there was a day I thought I was in a mental hospital. And my wife and my mom would uh, call me. You know, they got 14 minutes on a Zoom call. And I think my wife said the first three days, she thought she could see in my eyes that. They were open, but I wasn't there. And, you know, I spent time trying to figure out how to, you know, why I was there, how to get out, or, you know, and they would ask those cognitive questions like what time it is or what day it is. And, you know, there's a digital clock in front of you. And I had no idea. You know, I think uh, someone asked me a question about remembering COVID. And, you know, just because it was in the past, I mean, hell, I thought I'd been there a year. You know, I was just lost. They started laughing when I got more coherent because I was, was trying to convince them that I never had COVID and I shouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah, there, there was there was a moment where um, they told me I was going to get out of the ICU and go home. And I thought that meant like now. And I still hadn't gotten all my tubes removed. Still hadn't passed a swallow test. You know, but I was trying to find my wallet and rent a car to get home. Huh. It was interesting. I think it, it really hit me that something had happened when the uh, PT started. And, you know, they got me to try and stand up, and I couldn't. And I was like, oh, this is this is not good. Not a positive moment. That had to be so odd. I'm trying to put myself in that position of, you know, you're sedated and, and intubated, and you don't, you know, you're coming out of it, and you don't know where you're at, don't know how long you've been out. And then, you know, you're trying to convince, your brain's trying to convince you that, you're fine 
and that you're trying to leave, but then you can't walk. I mean, that's just got to, I mean, that's like an ultimate mind screw. I mean, just. Oh yeah. I will say like the moment where I was the most excited was the swallow test. You know, they came in with apple juice and water for the first time and you know, all, all that kind of stuff you really take for granted. Finally, wasn't a swab on the lips. And then they brought out that uh, mechanical soft food, which was like the ultimate tease. I guess it was better than the purple uh, purple seating tube. <laughs> Tom, do you have a question? No, I I was going to say it's it's interesting to hear all this because having been in ICU and done the spontaneous breathing trials and having interaction with the patients, it's just, I guess, eye-opening to hear someone's vivid I didn't think that's what was going on or like he said, he heard them laugh and it's certainly not at him. It's just, okay, buddy. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> I, we, we know where we're at, you know? So it's just, it's also, even though I have literally been the nurse in the room with doing this, it's also extremely hard to put myself in those shoes. And I'm just listening to the story, wondering how I would have been. I don't think they were yeah. laughing at me. That was a conversation with my wife. Yeah. It was kind of like, yeah, he's, he still is trying to convince us he shouldn't be here. <laughs> now, I've had that conversation, but yeah, <laughs> it just it is, it is always interesting to hear some of the answers during during those trials. So I thought the closet for a day led to a McDonald's. So my my head was not there. So how was your recovery post getting unintubated? Uh, you know, I know you had some do some physical therapy and and did some other things. So, kind of, can you walk us briefly through some of that? I actually didn't do as much physical therapy as you would expect. I mean, we did we did a little bit in the ICU, and then I don't know what goals I had to meet or what what got me out of there. But they it was four days, I think, and they moved me to a regular room and a regular COVID room, as the case would be. And they brought in a walker, and I was the fall risk. And I mean, that was probably the most dehumanizing couple days because they had me on, uh, you know, diapers and uh, three different laxatives. So, you know, I moved the wrong way and it didn't go well, but I could see a bathroom that I could get to if I could just, if I could just get to it. And um, so, I mean, that was my goal to get out of there was to get to the bathroom in a shower and the PT people, you know, they, they have the goals on the board. But they were talking to my family at that time, saying that I was going to need about a month of, uh, or two weeks or some, some time period of skilled nursing or nursing home. And, you know, when they set the goals for the bathroom and the shower, I actually hit them in, uh, it was like 24 hours. And it kind of surprised everyone, you know, that I was that committed to that goal. And I was able to get off of oxygen on the last day, which was maybe three days in the regular room. I did have problems with swallowing and breathing and pain and all that kind of stuff. And I came out, uh, I think when I left there, they had me on, I want to say one inhaler at that time and a whole bunch of drugs. And I was still coughing and still coughing up what they call it, COVID crap or whatever. And not really too excited to eat yet, but that could have just been hospital food. So some of the long-term effects i mean what obviously dismissed from the hospital but what what kind of things are you dealing with currently that is likely attributed to because i think one of the things that we hear so much 
in the general public is, oh, well, it's, it, it's like the flu and it'll go away in a few days or, you know, it's not going to be that bad. So, I mean, can you just kind of oh, briefly yeah. go over some of your, some of the long-term things that you're seeing now? Well, we've had, you know, because I came up at the steroids right away at the hospital and within three weeks of leaving the hospital, my throat closed up completely and I couldn't breathe. And we had an ambulance trip back to the hospital and surprisingly, they just, after the first trip, they just shipped me as soon as they stabilized me. They threw me back on an ambulance and sent me back up to KU again. There's a, what we've discovered or what we're discovering is that there's inflammation that's been pretty severe because we're, we're on the upper levels of the amount of uh, steroids we should be taking. But, um, I still have a COVID rash on my lower back, which my primary care doctor said, the amount of steroids I'm on, it it shouldn't exist. And still, you know, stamina, breathing-wise, you know, I can't I can't run very far, maybe maybe a quarter lap. I mean, after the last trip to the hospital yesterday, I was at like four or five trips up the stairs and back down to one again. So I'm taking two inhalers daily. I think a mixed one, uh, Simbacort, and I have to carry a rescue inhaler everywhere on top of the steroids and some other stuff. The last time I was scoped, about a week or two ago, by an ear, nose, and throat doctor, she had um, found some damage on my vocal cords and in my throat, which they think is from the uh, ventilator tube. We were looking at pictures of where the ventilator sat, the breathing tube sat, and we think it sat on top of some... um, hardware from an surgery, but they're waiting to do a pulmonary test to rule out a lack of, uh, or my oxygen levels or breathing levels. And then we're doing speech therapy and I guess then we just have general stamina stuff. And and every time we, we tend to try and bring the steroids down, I end up visiting the hospital again. So they're kind of getting ruled out as a, as a plan of attack right now. So, one of the things I heard you say, you've mentioned pain meds a couple times. Is it an overall body pain? Is it just in your chest? Is it your joints? Like, what are some of the other non-breathing issues that you've been having to deal with? My heart rate is definitely still a little bit elevated. But, um, and I guess now blood pressure has been high. As far as pain, I've, I've brought that down a lot. I think the first month, it was kind of everywhere. And I had, I had lost. 35 pounds and have lost a lot of muscle mass. But as far as general pain, it's, it's pretty localized to my throat and ears and um, my chest if I overdo it. But outside of breathing stuff, I, I've been pretty lucky and localized. I know a lot of people are have a lot more, uh, say, scattered or random stuff going on that I've read about. But mine's been kind of just, just there. And that might be because I'm still pushing myself to, to stay as uh, active as I can until my wife catches me and holds me down. She's, she's always a little upset <laughs> with, it. with where I'm at or where I'm pushing myself. She, she thinks the steroids are uh, giving me um, mental permission to do more than I should be right now. Yeah, like a false, false bravado type thing. Yeah, I can see that. And I, I hope people caught it earlier that you – we've been texting back and forth uh, trying to determine, you know, how we were going to do the interview and, and stuff. He literally said he was in the hospital yesterday again. So, I mean, this is not something that's just 
oh, I'll get it for a few days and, you know, then be fine. You very well might be, but you could also be the one who is continuing to have issues and problems. So how many times have we been in a hospital in total at this point from the first time with COVID? I have had four ER visits, three or four hospital admissions. And I know the last one, my wife took what the doctor said as, because they were talking about another one, but you want specialists involved. Because if this round of steroids doesn't stay as effective as they'd like, they're talking about IV steroids. And the amount that I've been on in the length of time is concerning everyone from my endocrinologist down to my, you know, I have a pretty extensive, more of a medical team than I ever wanted. And everyone's getting very concerned with the amount of steroids. And the the plan that, as she understood it, was we, we have to find a way to keep you alive long enough to find out what's causing this. So the, the IV steroids and everything is the next step. It's kind of disconcerting to her and I guess everyone else. So it's definitely not out of the woods yet, as much as I'd like to believe I am. And that was one of the things that we kind of mentioned earlier before we started recording was Anil and I were talking and, and you know, endocrinology is not super happy with the amount of steroids that he's on. I'm like, I get that, but breathing is also kind of important. And we kind of want you to continue to do that. So yeah, you know, it, it's got to be a, a delicate balance. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a little less delicate, though. It feels like a hammer on it. But, you know, but I agree, there's not, not too many choices because we've We've tried two or three times to uh, titrate down, and you know every time we start to, it just it breaks out and gets worse again. And so it's kind of, you know, but they don't want to use the local hospital as a triage center every other week. Not a good plan. Probably not good that I know everyone now. <clears throat> but you know, could be worse. I still think there's an end game to it. I think uh, I did that. So talk to the KU specialist or their their heads of infectious control or, or pulmonary. And everyone had told me locally, oh, we expect this to be over in three to four months. And he looked at me and said, just the ventilator itself, you know, he would expect six to 12 months as far as recovery. Hmm. So, you know, and, you know, there's, like I said, every single person, you know, even when I had home health aides or home health nurses or even doc, you know, my primary care doctor, you know, I can ask them questions about things. And, you know, since I was such an early adopter, the answer to everyone is, well, we have no idea. You know, we don't know if your lungs are going to heal all the way, you know, even the ear, nose and throat specialist. And even though she's at KU and she's an assistant professor and, you know, she's in the thick of it. I ask them, well, how many COVID patients come in off the ventilator that you have to deal with this with? And she's like, well, you're the first one. Yeah. So, you know, it's just kind of in that great spot where people are assuming and guessing and experimenting, but no one really has definite answers. It's kind of like, we'll throw this at you and see if it works. And that was kind of what they did on the ventilator too. When I looked at the records, it was, oh, we'll throw this at it and see if it works. And they tried a lot of very interesting, innovative things. And, you know, obviously they worked because I'm here. Right. But it was um, it was interesting because I got a, a different perspective. My endocrinologist was a uh, did a residency at KU, so she knew um, a lot of my medical team up there, 
and she was watching what they were doing on real time, you know, through their internet systems and everything. You know, what, what her team had said is what they were testing for up there and what they were looking at and watching was light years ahead of what we were doing down here. Like they, they weren't even watching the things that they were watching up there. So, you know, to me, it's concerning because then you're in my region, but we have four ICU beds. If it blows up out there where people are that far ahead, it's just in my head, the level of care is going to be so much different down here and the death rate is going to be much higher. You know, it, it's not it's not to besmirch anyone that's doing everything that they have the capabilities to do. But, you know, we don't have the resources that Kansas City or Wichita does. And if they fill up and there's nowhere to go, boy, you're just there. That to me is a nightmare scenario. You know, I heard, you know, Shannon's story of what it sounded like when they were overwhelmed out there. I mean, it's New York City, for heaven's sake. You know, they have way more resources than we do in Kansas. That's just, you know, my, my thought. Maybe maybe I was lucky that I got the first reservation. Huh. Well, I, I want you to know that we really appreciate you coming on and telling the side of it that we don't often get to see or hear, I guess in this case, being providers. I mean, we are obviously trying to do what we can to, to make sure people are taken care of. But like Tom said, you know, we like doing the, the checks on you in the ICU and kind of still not being there coherently and, and hearing it from a patient's perspective is just puts a whole different spin on things. Don't you think Tom? Ab- absolutely. And again, I, I just keep thinking about all the times and all the people that you see on social media that are like, Oh, it's just the flu. I mean, well, hell the president of the United States said it. And I I'm listening to Anil and going, my God, like, this is the thing that we're trying to prevent. And it, it's it's one of those moments where it, it feels like I was already concerned and I had my awareness of this, but it just seems to bring it home 10 times fold. Like it, it just, I, I can't thank you enough for coming in and sharing your story and, and letting us know. And I'm hoping we didn't exhaust you just by having you talk for this long. <laughs> oh, no, I, I kind of work from home now, so I'm. It might be. I'm on the phone all the time, unfortunately. Uh, well, Tom, we'll do our social media show. We didn't do one at the beginning, so we just wanted to get into listening to Anil's story here. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can find us on the web. We're at www.justsomepodcast.com. You can email us, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Tom, real quick, what else can they do to help us out? Well, if they would be so inclined, they can go to the Just Some Podcast website. They can scroll down to just about the bottom. They're going to see an Amazon link. They can click on that before they do any of their shopping or putting anything into their cart. Then they can shop like we were never there, and they won't even know it. It's totally free, and everything they buy from that point forward is give some proceeds back to the show, and we would really appreciate it. But, man, on that note, we're going to let Anil get off here and get some rest. <laughs> yes. Uh, like, I feel tired for him. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm wore out just thinking about it. But, uh, Anil, again, man, thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. I know that you've been uh, bombarded locally with, with interview requests, and we sure as hell appreciate you taking Absolutely. ours on also. Cannot thank you enough. 
Oh, it was it was a good time. On that note, hey, I hope everybody has a great week. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there. Practice swearing just to pass the time. Lately, I see why I am alone. I caught some road rage and I thought of you. And all the many times you say I should have known.